Welcome to Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast written by Jane Sigford and hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Today's podcast is a two-part series which were inspired by the COVID pandemic and the societal self-examination worldwide, which was ignited by the killing of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. The first podcast is Racism, the Achievement Gap, and Schools. For the second podcast, I will pretend to be audiobooks, and I will read an important article called How Real is Race? Using Anthropology to Make Sense of Human Diversity, which has difference-making ideas and thoughts for educators. So let's begin. Racism, Achievement Gap, and Schools. This is a momentous time. It is a time when there is a groundswell unlike any other to get rid of racism in this country and demand changes in all avenues of society. Some even call it a revolution. Not only is this happening in the U.S., but the same push is being seen worldwide. Ironically, we are also in the midst of a pandemic which has tipped our daily lives upside down. But I believe the COVID-19 pandemic created fertile soil for this awareness and this movement and action to grow. Without the pandemic, George Floyd would not have lost his job and perhaps would not have been at 38th in Chicago. He did not deserve to die, especially in such a cruel way, but his death has ignited a passion for change. And for that, I recognize his extreme sacrifice. The pandemic with its shelter-in-place restrictions, social distancing requirements, and mandatory face masks has created a heightened sense of the here and now. We're just disconnected from the future in a way that's never happened before because we can't plan or know what is going to happen. There is a demand for the here and now to examine and change our beliefs, practices, laws, pictures, slogans, flags, statues, Mr. Floyd's death has touched our hearts and minds with a social force that is unlike anything we've ever seen. It seems like a long time ago that we saw glimmers of hope in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech given in 1963 when he said, I have a dream that little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Forty years later, we are seeing demands that this needs to happen now. This podcast is about racism in schools. I will provide examples of some of the changes we've seen since Mr. Floyd's death. I will present information from anthropologists who have proven that race is an artificial construct because there is only one race, the human one. I will present information about how the way we think has kept racism alive and well. I will look at education and the achievement gap and ask where is the voice of educators right now as we hear about changes in society in all walks of life, business, politics, law, people on the street, artists, but we don't hear a lot from education. I will also offer some questions about how education is structured, about the curriculum we use, the ways we measure success, and will pose some ideas for possibly moving forward. The first prong of this podcast is to talk about just a few things that have happened since May 25th, not a coincidence that it was Memorial Weekend when George Floyd was killed. Because I live in the Minneapolis area, one source of information for me is my daily paper, the Star Tribune. 
I am certain that other newspapers and media outlets in Minnesota and across the nation are reporting and completing and doing some of the same changes. For example, in the Strib on Wednesday, July 1st, there's an article discussing a resolution adopted by the Hennepin County Board to declare racism a public health crisis and then outline a strategy to address it. This is huge. County administrators recognized that they were unaware of any other county in the United States to have such a measure to address the many societal issues that are contributing factors to racism and differences in academic achievement. In addition, newspapers across the country are not posting pictures of possible offenders because they realize that that may perpetuate stereotypes. Pictures do tell a thousand words. We see and hear more reports and articles about issues that appeal and relate to our many cultures. The Minnesota section of the newspaper is more inclusive of our many Minnesotans. These articles are no longer relegated to inner pages, but are front and center with photos of people doing wonderful things, feeding the hungry, painting memorial murals, rebuilding looted buildings, working with church groups, writing essays, performing music or theater. We are seeing state and national lawmakers looking at laws which regulate police behavior. There are police forces in the U.S. and across the world that are examining their employment contracts and union practices to make the police forces more transparent and for it to be more able to discipline bad actors. We've seen statues which honor racist leaders and practices removed, even in London, where one statue was dumped in a river. We've seen the state of Mississippi change its state flag so it is no longer a Confederate flag, an emblem which is seen to represent a way of life devoted to keeping slavery. Plus even Gettysburg, South Dakota removed a Confederate flag emblem from their police uniforms and police cars. We are examining our own Minnesota state flag and seal which show a farmer looking backward to a native person who is riding into the sunset. Even the Washington Redskins are going to change their name because of financial pressure from major supporters. Some people wonder if we're overreacting. There is a fine line between remembering our history and learning from it to no longer publicly revering hateful practices. This is difficult work. Education, listening to many voices, and ethical leadership play a pivotal role in this tumultuous time. We all, and particularly educators, have the opportunity to make a powerful difference in the type of world we leave to our descendants. The second segment of this podcast is about race. Here's a statement that will cause all sorts of emotion. There is really only one race, the human one. A powerful article outlining the history of racial definitions and how that affects education called How Real is Race Using Anthropology to Make Sense of Diversity was written by Carol M., and her last name is spelled M-U-K-H-O-P-A-D-H-Y-A-Y, and Rosemary Heinze, which was published in the Kappen magazine in May of 2003. This is such a powerful article that I am airing a second part of this racial podcast series where I will actually read the entire article. It's well worth listening to and taking notes on some of their suggestions that they offer for us educators. Those two scholars have also published a book by the same name, which has diagrams and activities to use in classes or professional development. 
Historically, dividing people into so-called racial groups began with Europeans in the 17th and 18th centuries when colonialism was the practice of the day. Europeans sought to classify people into races geographically into a hierarchy which supposedly reflected the nearness of God's form. That meant that white people were on the top, black were on the bottom, and therefore it was okay to capture and enslave black people as they were far removed from being like God. At this time, particularly in England, white people, particularly poor people, could be sentenced to debtor's prison. England wanted them removed from their country, so they sent these indentured servants to America or Australia to serve their sentence. However, note they were called indentured servants, not slaves, which meant when their sentence was up, they were free. Blacks were never indentured. They were always enslaved, which was a life sentence. Our anthropologists state that less than 7% of our biological makeup constitutes what we think of as racial differences. Curly straight hair, epicanthus folds, the amount of melanin in the skin, susceptibility to Tay-Sachs disease or sickle cell are differences. What is important for us educators is to recognize that none of those things affect how and how much a person can learn. This is a very important attitude that must be changed in the minds and hearts of educators. The attitudes and expectations toward those who may display different physical differences have become part of what our anthropologists have called cultural invention, meaning that we see those things and attribute the concept of other to those people, meaning they're different. They may not be as good. Historically, racial categories have been found in the U.S. census. When examined how those categories have changed over time, one can see evidence that race is an artificial construct. Early on, there were three races with such horrible names, Caucasian, Negro, Mongoloid. Then there became five, with name changes, of course, and now there are many. There is an even an other category, or a mixed race category. People self-identify. If my mother is black and my father is Chinese, what am I? Racism was deeply prejudicial against blacks when laws were enacted, stating that someone who had one drop of black blood, really, I thought blood was red, they were black, which limited their options for voting, housing, employment, and so on. On the 2020 census, which asks for self-identification, but one can even opt out of saying what race you are, the categories are, now listen to this because there are so many, white, black or African American, American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian with the following categories, Chinese, Filipino, Asian Indian, Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese, other Asian, for example, Pakistani, Cambodian, Hmong, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander with categories of Native Hawaiian, Samoan, Chamorro, other Pacific Islanders such as Tongan, Fijian, Marshallese, some other race. Really? That's over 23 categories. Those aren't races, but they're cultures or ethnicities. We have so many categories that in reality, we don't have any because there is really only one race and that's the human one. The third part of this podcast is about thinking, how the human mind works and contributes to the entrenchment of previously conceived ideas. Our expert for this is Daniel Kahneman, who is author of the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, 
He's Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Public Affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. And interestingly, I heard that they were looking at changing the name because of Woodrow Wilson's racist ideas. But Kahneman also got a Nobel Prize for Economics because of his work on thinking. His book and the thinking that went into it, pun intended, was a bestseller and received Best Book of the Year in 2011 with the National Academy of Sciences Communication Organization. President Barack Obama bestowed upon him the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2013. Kahneman is unique because he's an economist and yet wrote this breakthrough book on thinking. He has helped many people understand how and why we think the way we do. He describes three types of biases that are very helpful when thinking and exploring racism and the attitudes that contribute to the achievement gap. For me, the one that is so crucial to understand right now, particularly in this heightened polarity in politics, is confirmation bias, which is what happens when you have an interpretation and adopt it and then find ideas and data that support what you already believe. Ideas or facts that may be different are cast aside as not pertinent or meaningful, thereby confirming what you already believe to be true. Kahneman says that such thinking helps resolve ambiguity and quote, it's like a shorthand, which is precisely why you or a president shouldn't trust everything you think. Unfortunately, the more powerful you are, the more you believe your own thoughts. A translation? We follow or listen to news stations that support what we already believe. We read books that do the same. It is difficult to change preconceived, reinforced ideas. Sometimes it may take a dramatic personal occurrence to create a change in thinking and behavior. This is particularly true when the idea involves values. I've often said that people often don't confuse their values with facts. In this complex world where things change so much and so quickly, many values have become a shorthand so someone doesn't have to feel bombarded with contradictory information. As Kahneman says, it resolves ambiguity. For example, if someone says they're Republican or Democrat or Protestant or Catholic, they think there's a certain belief system that goes with that, and if new information doesn't fit, then that idea is put aside. The same may be true about ideas about racial groups, hence stereotypes arise and are difficult to erase. It's confirmation bias. An example I believe of confirmation bias and pervasive racism in schools is the disaggregation of data on ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act, according to racial categories. The racial categories outlined in this system are American Indian, Asian, Black, Hispanic, Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, White, two or more races. In light of the previous discussion, you can see that this is more about culture, not separate biological, genetically distinct so-called races. Paradoxically, we have so many supposed categories that in effect we have none. The distinction becomes meaningless when it comes to look at learning because the 7% of our makeup that is genetically different does not apply to how or what a person can learn. Subdividing by race in itself is a racist practice that leads us to look for ideas that we already hold, confirmation bias. We look for ways certain people are different or other or less than. Instead of looking at what students know and what they need to know, we look for deficits, which creates the mindset we describe as the Pygmalion effect, meaning 
that unconscious beliefs lead to differences in academic expectations. If we don't expect as much, we don't get it. If we expect that students won't learn, they probably won't. If we see students who are different, have different backgrounds, we may lower our expectations, teach differently, thereby getting different outcomes, which contributes to the stereotypes of, see, those students can't achieve what others do. The achievement gap emphasizes deficits and lacks. Is it possible that the more we emphasize this deficit, the more it becomes entrenched because that's what we are focused on? It becomes, again, confirmation bias. Interestingly, before ESSA, when it was being created as No Child Left Behind, when the powers that be were trying to decide what categories were necessary, they considered having male-female as one. However, they realized that boys would be behind girls in many areas for much of the school career because schools were structured, and still are, in a manner that is more conducive to female styles of learning, more passive, less hands-on, etc. They didn't adopt that category, but they did adopt race. Did they expect that persons of different so-called races would not achieve as much, yet they included that category? Why? I say because of racism and confirmation bias. Our testing systems also reinforce our faulty ideas. Where racism and confirmation bias are deeply embedded is in our idea of IQ tests, which have been the forerunner of SAT and ACT tests and our testing methods for statewide testing. The format and content are based on a Eurocentric heritage of ideas and cultural achievements. An interesting read about the history of testing is the book called The Mismeasure of Man by Stephen Jay Gould. After reading the book, one will never look at IQ tests, SATs, ACTs, or any standardized testing the same ever again. It began with Alfred Binet in 1905. He was hired to design an IQ test to see if fifth grade boys who were mentally challenged would qualify for extra help. Other IQ tests were developed from this model for many purposes, such as to determine which immigrants were allowed into the United States, leading to some of the discriminatory quotas against Southern Europeans and Asians in the 1920s. Such tests were used to see who should be sent to officer candidate school during World War I when many intelligent people could not read, therefore were deemed unintelligent and unfit to be officers. The tests were used to try to prove that women, particularly prostitutes, were less intelligent. Of course, the tests were used as racially discriminatory tool that would try to prove that blacks were not as intelligent. The testing game is rigged because there is no way to write a test that is not culturally biased. The content of the questions, the way the questions are asked, the vocabulary of the test, and the reading level needed are culturally biased. I have a small personal example. In one of my many incarnations, I was a special education teacher and did the testing for possible qualification for learning disabilities services. At the time, we administered the Woodcock-Johnson test. One of the parts was to ask students to write a response to a prompt to assess their writing and thinking skills. I asked this one young 14-year-old black woman, a recent transplant from Gary, Indiana, to write a response to what she did on her summer vacation. She looked at me with a panicked expression and I realized she had never been on a summer vacation. I made the decision to change the prompt. Although technically I invalidated the test, the purpose of the exercise was to assess writing skills, not to find out what trip she had been on. I asked her different questions and was able to assess her writing skills. 
But if one looks at any test, you will see questions that infer that a person understands the American culture with its idioms, fairy tales, literary allusions, customs, and mores. Tests are culturally biased. In one of the high schools where I was an administrator, our staff included a black male school social worker. He let me take a black IQ test. Well, I had no IQ at all. SATs and ACTs were modeled after these supposed IQ tests. If one designs a system that is based on white culture, is administered in a way that is familiar to the white population, it follows that they are more intelligent, hence a racist confirmation bias. The actual idea of a finite number defining the amorphous concept of intelligence is in itself fallacious. How can it be reduced to a number without recognizing the complexity of human intelligence? What is intelligence? Is it the ability to read and write? What if I'm a gifted musician and can't read well? Am I intelligent? What if I can hack into computers and get to the dark web but don't know history? Am I intelligent? Confirmation bias. Another aspect of Kahneman's work is the idea of hindsight bias, which is bias when people overestimate their ability to have predicted an outcome that could not possibly have been predicted. Things like, I knew you'd get the job. I knew this program wouldn't work when there really is no one way that someone could know that for certain. Hindsight bias is particularly unkind to decision makers who act as decision makers for others. Physicians, financial advisors, CEOs, and I would add superintendents and principals to this list. The worse the consequence, the greater the hindsight bias which creates leaders to become risk averse as their decisions are scrutinized. Therefore, decision makers tend to make familiar bureaucratic decisions and go along with past practice, and they avoid taking risks. For us as educators, that means that decisions that avoid changing a practice or adopting a different strategy for fear of others saying retrospectively, I knew it wouldn't work, we've tried that before, it becomes easier to do what has been done before and hope for a different outcome that doesn't occur. Hence, the achievement gap stays. What if we developed a different frame to examine data? What if we looked at student learning without looking at the names of the students first so that we concentrate on the learning, not on the person? If the standards are truly what students need to know and do, then why don't we teach them until they learn it before they move on? Changing those practices would change the outcome. Which leads us to Kahneman's third idea, that of outcome bias. When our decisions do not exhibit the hoped-for outcome, then outcome bias comes into play because then we blame the decision makers. Politicians blame educators, educators blame politicians for inadequate funding and support. When legislators give money for certain programs to erase the achievement gap and the achievement gap doesn't erase, then legislators blame schools, educators blame legislators and society, parents blame schools, and teachers are just blamed. Blame is a shame game that helps no one. Instead of looking backward, let's try a new point of view. How can we make schools focus on learning, not age or seat time? How can we put learning at the top of every discussion we have? What does each student need to learn? What do they already know? And we communicate these expectations to the student, implying that yes, they can learn and we will support them to do that. This is a time for a creative, visionary and groundbreaking movement. This is a time to defy confirmation, hindsight, and outcome bias to forge a new path. Thinking differently may lead to different outcomes. 
Now it's time for part four of the podcast, Racism in Education and a Vision for the Future. Partly because schools are not in session right now, the news about what schools and education in general are doing with this rising pressure to eradicate racist ideas and practices has been quieter than some of the other areas. We do get updates on what may happen in the fall about when and if schools can reopen. We hear about frustrated parents who learn how difficult it is to teach. We knew that. We hear about how teachers miss the interaction with students because many things cannot be replicated by a Zoom classroom or online activities. We knew that too. But we have not had as much presence in the news as an organization as some other areas. Reimagine Minnesota is one effort with Metro superintendents that has been working for several years with the goals of seeing welcoming classrooms for all, personalized education, and equitable resources with the strategies of cultural competence, personalized education, cultural inclusivity, recruitment and retention, student voice, adult behaviors, community bridges, shared understanding, and statewide funding in an effort to commit to equity and excellence for all students. Their focus is broader than the one I'm taking in this podcast, plus the discussions have been only metro-based. Racism is an issue that affects every classroom in the United States, regardless of the size of your students of color population, because of the inherent racism in our curricular offerings, testing procedures, and unconscious biases. What I focus on in this podcast is to get a deeper understanding of the fallacy that we are different races, and to look at how our thinking practices prevent us from making major changes. The work I propose is directed toward districts in each school, in each classroom, by looking specifically at racist practices to create changes to the school day, course offerings, and measurement systems. To modify at the individual classroom level would lead to many of the changes that Reimagine Minnesota advocates. I would like to believe that my approach is more akin to FDR's plan of working with people to improve the country rather than trying to change the country to work with people. To our credit, educators have been involved in professional development about racism and the achievement gap for a very long time. When I was a new teacher years ago, there was a requirement for licensure renewal to take a human relations course, which was a mere crack in the armor of racism by stressing that we need to honor all people and look at issues from many perspectives. Over these years, we still say the same thing with little change in the teaching and the learning in our schools. When leaders and teachers resume, how can we create a new vision for education that meets the needs of our 21st century kids? What needs to be taught? What needs to be dropped? What practices are discriminatory? What messages and images are we projecting that are inherently biased and or insensitive? How can we change measurement? The list goes on and on. What is first? I believe that the crucial beginning is for us to admit that our school system was developed on a white male Eurocentric racist system whose structure has remained largely the same for centuries. Although we are criticized for that, we don't change. Sure, we tinker, to use a term from Larry Cuban, Professor Emeritus from Stanford University, by changing start times, having middle schools instead of junior highs, block schedule instead of a six-hour day. Those are not major changes. Originally, schools were for the elite because it was felt that most people did not need to read and write, particularly women and people of color. Compulsory education laws are relatively recent in the span of history because it was only by 1932 
that there were some type of compulsory education laws in all states, even though school was mandatory only through the eighth grade. Whether the student accomplished the eighth grade learning was not necessary, one would age out. This was after World War I and slightly before World War II, less than 100 years ago. In addition, no two people can completely agree on the main purpose of contemporary schools. When schools began, it was to teach literacy skills with reading, writing, speaking, math algorithms, and U.S. history and civics. Since the early 1900s, other responsibilities have continued to be added, such as health education, physical education, the arts. Now it's technology, mental health, and nutrition to the point that many schools provide food during the summer to some students who need it. One of the perceived roles for schools is to impart and teach about our culture, what it means to be an American, meaning their ideas that are steeped in our thinking, philosophy, art, history, literature, and government ideas and practices, largely from a Eurocentric perspective. Just look at what courses are offered in our high schools, even for our academically motivated students. One will see the emphasis is still white Eurocentric. One will not see an AP course in African black history or Latinx history or culture. We have world history, which is a fascinating course, but it's taught from a 10,000 foot view by looking at economic structures and how that influenced civilizations, cultural patterns, geographic interactions. It's not a course that probes individual cultures. We have AP offerings in various languages, but again, the majority are Eurocentric languages, Chinese and Japanese being the exception. Another program for academically motivated students is International Baccalaureate. At least this program requires an international language and many of the literary selections offered and chosen in the different literature courses are from different cultures. But this program too was designed for white students who were being educated around the world while their parents were diplomats or working in other countries. Imparting the American culture is now richer and more diverse and we need to broaden our scope. I know that some people have a couple of hesitations. One, by including more ideas, we may water down what it means to be an American as though there is an absolutely strict canon of ideas and literature that define us. Two, teachers fear that if they add some things, they will be criticized for not covering everything, every single person's ideas. The question becomes what to include and then what to eliminate because there is only a finite amount of time. The fear of being criticized leads us to outcome bias so that we avoid criticism. That's very valid, but we cannot change if we don't. This work takes the voices of many constituents and leadership. It's difficult work. Since we are criticized for looking like schools have looked for hundreds of years, let's talk about changing the structure to make it more accessible and successful for all of our students. Mass instruction was modeled after Frederick the Great's idea of training for the military by telling men what they needed to know, and he did so in large groups because that was efficient. Although his ideas were ahead of his time in requiring education and promoting free education for poor citizens with a curriculum inculcating a strong national identity, his delivery method to reach the most students was largely teacher-led, with students as passive receivers and regurgitators of knowledge. This was the beginning of the lecture system, which was later adopted by universities and then by public schools as a way to reach the most students. What we know now is that that is only one method and not the sole method of learning.
Part of Frederick the Great's system was the pattern of moving from one grade level to another with supposedly more advanced curricula as one progresses. This has become the egg crate system where the eggs are sitting in their own rows. Grades and classes are age-based, not necessarily learning-based, which has led to the practice of age-grade related assessments because they have been designed to measure the so-called standards that have also been written by age-grade related norms. Plus, this has led to the funding stream from our legislatures that promote this age-based idea of what and how learning occurs. This perpetuates the outcome and confirmation bias. We've already talked about it. So what can we do about it? Well, first of all, we do not throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is what we often do when new programs or ideas come forward. But let's be different. Let's use a new frame. Let's frame it about learning, not age. We can use the standards that we already have in place, but take away the age grade division and design learning programs for kids that let them know what they need to learn and when they've learned it, they'll move to the next level without regard for what grade that is assigned to. If our standards are true standards, then it should not matter how old someone is when they achieve them. Students should be taught at their instructional level, particularly in elementary, in reading, math, and science, where the state's tests are, and they could move ahead as they learn. Because of our technology, we can administer these tests as students master concepts so they can move ahead at their own pace in these academic areas. Such a system recognizes that learning is the reason we're in school, it's not linear, and not all students learn in the same way or at the same pace. Having students with age mates in many classes recognizes the need for the social development, which is also very important. One of the hurdles to overcome would be the traditional idea that elementary teachers have, quote, their class, their students, when in fact, an elementary student doesn't just have one teacher. They often have six or seven over the course of a week because of art teachers, music teachers, physical education teachers, and so on. Such programs have been used off and on in various incarnations in various districts. It's been called continuous progress using looping or non-graded classrooms. Maria Montessori developed an education system that has been seen and used with gifted students and has been doing this type of learning at an instructional level for many, many years. It could work and it would be fun to make certain that all students have the solid foundation they need before they move on. Another hurdle to this idea would be to educate our parents. A change such as this is really a shift and is scary to some. In this rapid changing society, especially now, schools have traditionally been one thing that has stayed relatively the same, and that becomes a comfort because parents think they know what school is, they know what to expect. However, we can't be criticized for not changing and then prevented from changing when we need to. I believe that if we spend time and educate our parents as to the why and how, if they think their child will be able to take more time or progress quickly if appropriate, Parents would support the program. They want what's best for their children. Plus, here's the best part. If we did that, there would be no achievement gap. Let me repeat that. There would be no achievement gap if our schools were based on learning, not age. In this system, some students would make two years of growth in a year. Some would take longer in many areas. Some might graduate at 16 and some at 21. Even some of our newcomers might take extra time, but that's a good thing. 
The beauty of that is all students would be learning at their instructional level, and all would be better educated and more well-prepared citizens. Importantly, schools would receive the same amount of money whether the student graduated at 16 or at 21. Plus, and this is huge, this system provides incentive for teachers to make certain all students learn. Teachers cannot pass off a student to the next grade level thinking that that issue would be someone else's to deal with. The real block to changing any of these systems is the way schools are funded. Foundation aid is based on enrollment numbers by numbers of students of a certain age and a certain grade in October, not on how much a student knows or has learned. It's diametrically opposing idea to fund schools on age, yet publicly grade schools on what students have learned. If schools were funded when a student learns, then it would be a more accurate public statement to parents as to which schools are succeeding. Schools who have a high percentage of poverty, the goal would still be about learning, but there would be support for that and more recognition that it does take different strategies to deal with educational needs of those students who are in poverty or generational poverty because unlike race, poverty does affect learning. In the past, schools have been shamed for their low graduation rate, but under this system, students would graduate when they've learned not when they just turn 18. Changing the emphasis to be about learning mandates a change in the funding system which mandates that legislators need to be educated as to how and why this change is beneficial to students, to the state, to the country. I actually believe that paying schools when students learn would save the state money because some would graduate at a younger age and there would be more ownership and responsibility for teachers to ensure that all students learn. Another major player in this discussion would be to work with the teachers union because this could be of real benefit to our teachers and would truly be meaningful work for the teachers union to support that schools are about learning, not about age. Another structural piece about schools is the fact that we've divided them into elementary, middle, and high schools. Let's think about that. It's obvious that students are able to think and learn depending on their brain and social development. To me, this leads to the recognition that the job of elementaries is different than the job of middle schools and is different from the job of high schools. Elementary education provides a crucial, solid foundation in reading skills, math skills, how to learn, how to do school. There are certain non-negotiable tasks that must be accomplished. By the end of their time in elementary schools, for example, students need to be able to read for understanding and utilize math algorithms such as long division, percents, ratios. There's a transition at fifth grade in many areas because teachers stop teaching how to read and expect students to read for understanding. If that is not secure, students will have difficulty as they move to middle school. The same is true for the use of math algorithms. In fifth grade, the understanding of math algorithms and procedures themselves are beginning to be more abstract. Students need to understand long division, be able to work and understand fractions, ratios, percents. These are necessary skills for the more abstract discipline of algebra, and the understanding of abstract concepts is very developmental. Some students are ready for algebra in eighth grade, and some students aren't. But abstract concepts in math also 
is about the relationships and the complexity of data and how facts relate to one another. In this data-rich society, as people read and hear about percentages, medians, control groups, and so on, these math relationships are very important as we live in a very data-rich society. If students don't understand the complexity of percentages and ratios and medians and data sets, they can't make sense out of all the incoming data that we are barraged with on a daily basis in our newspapers and on our TV. Students need to be well-educated to understand what they're listening to and what makes sense. Middle schools are a time for exploration to try new things such as more sophisticated in the arts, in bands, in technology. Puberty affects physical abilities and confidence at this time. Middle schools allow students to try things that they may not try and that they may become interested in and explore further in high school that might even lead to a job or a career. This is a time when students move from such concrete facts to more and more abstract thinking that they will use later in high school. High schools should use this knowledge that has been acquired to develop learners who will ask more in-depth questions and conduct research into content areas such as civics, literature, science, and the arts. It should be a time when students use their learning to create their own learning. They should not be such passive recipients, but active dialoguers with adults and peers to learn mediation skills, probe the complexities of world problems, question and develop their skills in the arts, physical education, and technology. The days at high school could even be scheduled differently, particularly with juniors and seniors, perhaps on more of a collegiate schedule, where they may have seminar days and then students would do internships or work in the community. We only do a fair job in helping our juniors and seniors use their free time productively, which shows up when students go to college and can't manage their time. What if we gradually wean them to learn how to do that when they still have the safeguards of concerned adults as mentors and monitors? Inherent in this idea of looking at the work of each level is contradictory to what we now practice because we act as though learning is linear, progressing evenly from elementary, a little bit more advanced in middle school, and even more advanced in high school. However, learning often occurs by leaps and bounds, and sometimes we teach things at the wrong level and then have to reteach it. We operate as though we introduce things at a general level in elementary, become a little more sophisticated at middle, and then even greater sophistication comes at the high school. It may not always be effective. For example, when I was a curriculum director, we did a survey under a science adoption and found that students spend six weeks of their time throughout their school career from elementary, middle, and high school on the scientific method. However, unless you talk to a student in AP Physics, they couldn't tell you what the scientific method was or the steps of it. I would suggest that perhaps it's not taught at the right developmental level sometimes, or it's not taught in a way that students connect it with real-life applications. Maybe we should just wait until students are relative scientists in advanced science class to teach it. Six weeks is a long time, and we do have a lot to teach. Why waste our time when it isn't effective? Now let's look at curriculum. It's been thought there's a canon of knowledge and processes that students need to have to be considered educated. However, much to some people's chagrin, that canon is not rigid and it needs to change. Literature, music, art, and science 
are no longer only about white Eurocentric males. In fact, the Strib on July 7th, 2020, had an article about a black bassoonist who is now a radio announcer for NPR's classical podcast on Sunday through to Thursday night. He is bringing in the idea that classical music is not just dead white guys from Europe, but there are classical musicians in all cultures. Hooray. His name is Garrett McQueen. What is top? The curriculum needs to reflect the many ideas and cultures that exist in our state and world, not just as add-ons or marginalized ideas. When I was curriculum director, when we looked for books that reflected the history of our country, for example, women and people of color were literally talked about in highlighted boxes in the margins as though they were add-ons. They aren't. They're a key part of the discussion. When we study musicians, for example, classical composers are male. But did you know that Mozart's sister was also an accomplished musician who played with her brother until they reached an age where the father thought it was inappropriate for her to perform? She even wrote music. She is not the only female musician, but we seem to think that the classic male white men are the canon of what is valuable to be taught and played. We think that performing in a symphony is what we should train musicians to do, but what about drummers? What about zitter players? What about music from many cultures that use different instruments. Women of color are particularly missing from the curriculum. Such movies as The Hidden Figures has helped us to go away from the stereotyped black woman of the Harriet Tubman ilk to realize that little did we know that smart black women helped us to get into space and here we thought it was only white men in white shirts with black ties who did that. We still have a lot of work to do. In literature, geography, and other social studies, we have a lot of work. For example, where is the course on Mexican history? Mexico is our neighbor. Do you know how many states are in Mexico? Can you name them and their capitals? Mexican children can name the 50 states of the U.S. and their capitals. The same would be true of Canada, another neighbor who shares our borders. How many provinces are there? What are their capitals? Just look at the maps that we see in our textbooks and on our walls. They are from the perspective of the Northern Hemisphere. Now look and find a map that's projected from the Southern Hemisphere. It's a very different look. Let's talk about measurement. Let's talk about how the success or not of schools is measured and reported. As stated above, students are given supposed grade level tests to see if they've mastered the appropriate standards. As mentioned previously, the structure of the test is based on the format of testing as developed in the early U.S and also on the idea that there is a canon of knowledge and skills that are relatively unchanging. I would question that. If one reads the newspapers, we see that some people say that knowledge doubles every 12 hours. In 1982, Buckminster Fuller, a futurist and inventor, suggested that accumulated and transmitted knowledge took 1,500 years to double from year 1 CE to 1,500. It doubled again in only 250 years, and by 1900, it doubled in 150 years. And now, it's theorized that knowledge doubles every 12 hours. Because knowledge keeps growing, isn't our job to keep growing with it? Shugata Mitra, professor of educational technology at the School of Education, Communication, and Language Sciences at Newcastle University, England, has worked with poverty-stricken children in India to develop more appropriate instructional methods. He says, quote, if all this stuff, the factoids on tests, is on Google, why do we have to stuff it in our heads? 
That's a catchy phrase that some would say is also to facile, which is true, but if knowledge is growing so much, what we really need is to have students know how to access knowledge and know how to ask questions. Students need to have a certain level of skill, but at what point do we change how we ask students to demonstrate knowledge? Do we stop asking tests that are the equivalent of asking trivial pursuit questions? Is intelligence defined by having only one right answer to very difficult questions? These are big issues. How should we assess learning? For example, in recognition of the fact that many of our tests are outdated and culturally biased, many colleges and universities in the U.S. and Minnesota have made the ACT and SAT testing optional, recognizing, one, that is not an indicator of possible college or life success, two, that it's discriminatory because white middle-class students are more likely to be able to take the preparatory classes and or take the test more than once. The Minneapolis campus of the University of Minnesota recently made this ACT-SAT requirement optional temporarily after the Crookston and Duluth campuses have already dropped it. Hamlin, McAllister, and the University of St. Thomas have already dropped it. Even the use of letter grades can be discriminatory and not very helpful. We understand, we think, what a letter grade means, but does an A mean that someone has learned a lot of new information well? or that the person already knew it, or that the student completed all the work, or that the student participated in class, arrived on time, and read the assignments. In opposition, what does an F or D indicate? That someone didn't learn, didn't come to class, didn't hand in homework? We know very well that grades can be rather whimsical, varying from teacher to teacher and moods and so on, the idea of standards-based report cards is a method some people have begun to use to show parents what content their student has actually learned. It's a way to make the reporting system about learning and not compliance. Some parents object to that because they're familiar with letter grades because they think they understand what they mean. But I'm not so sure. If schools are really about learning, then we need to make our measurement and reporting systems reflect that. So let's talk about technology. Technology is unique because it's a delivery system for information, plus a vehicle for assessment, and plus a curriculum. Teachers use various technologies to impart information and to engage with students, particularly now with students at home during the pandemic. We use computerized tests to assess daily learning and competence on statewide tests. Plus, there is an age-appropriate curriculum that is taught in schools how to use technology for research and communication, technology ethics, Engaging the validity of sources, which is a crucial 21st century skill, particularly in the easy access in our polarized society to all sorts of ideas, whether they are factual or not. Schools have had difficulty currently during the pandemic, in particular because of the digital divide, which is directly related to poverty and race. Some of our students don't have access. They don't have the tools and they don't have the internet connections in order to be successful in schools. One of the positives, and they're kind of hard to find about the COVID pandemic, is that there have been millions of dollars donated to those who don't have access so they engage in learning like other students. We have many heroes who have donated their personal fortunes to make this happen. But we have to keep remembering that access and the quality of access is not universal. The ability to be computer literate and technologically literate is an absolute life skill. 
We cannot let computer access or internet access further divide people by race or by poverty. Speaking of poverty, we know that supposed racial differences do not affect learning, but we do know that poverty does. However, schools cannot ameliorate the effects of poverty alone. This is a societal and a community issue. Actually, the recent pandemic has brought out discussions that help us recognize the social disadvantages of being poor and black, whether it's in employment opportunities, housing, or education. Churches, community organizations, neighborhoods, politicians, the legal systems need to work together. Schools can't overcome the effects of poverty by themselves. Because schools receive public tax dollars and all children have to go to school, schools are an easy target for legislators to lay the burden on our shoulders. For example, in many cities, schools not only provide breakfast, but they are feeding students and families during summer months and during COVID-19. My question is, where are the churches? Where are the social service agencies? Where are the community centers? Schools can't do it alone. In conclusion, schools and education must look at how we've continued racial and cultural bias in our structure, our culture, our measurement system. Coming back together after being on a so-called furlough during this pandemic is a prime time for us to be introspective as a community and as an organization and very open and critical and honest about what we do and how we do it. This podcast has talked about what's going on right now in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. It's talked about the definition of race. It's talked about how thinking prohibits us from making some major changes. And it's talked about some possible changes in the structure, measurement, and curriculum of what we do in schools. What we do know is that this true change would take vision, leadership, courage, and the willingness to do something new. In this hyper-polarized political climate, it is scary to take risks that may be outside past practices. But if not now, when? This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. The second podcast is called How Real is Race? I hope you listen and thanks for listening.